Brothers and sisters, as we begin this new sermon series, let us turn in God's Word to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10, this morning we'll be looking at verses 19 to 25. As you're turning there, I want us to reflect for a moment on a question. Why do we gather together as a church in worship? How would you answer that question? Why do we gather together as a church in worship? You know, most of us have been going to church for years. And what we do in worship is so familiar, becomes so routine. So the truth is for many of us that we don't think about what we are doing or why we are doing it. But we can begin to simply go through the motions. And I know this is true because, frankly, I've experienced this in my own life. And as a result, we lose sight of the central importance of our worship and the tremendous blessing of our worship where we even begin to think of worship as boring or as optional rather than refreshing and indispensable. See, I'm convinced that Christians in general and our church specifically needs to both recover and reflect upon what happens when we worship. And so we're going to take some time in this series to seek to answer this question. And this morning, I want us to consider why, why we gather together as a church for worship. And our answer, brothers and sisters, we see here is given through Hebrews chapter 10. So let us read them together. Hebrews 10 verses 19 to 25. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Brothers and sisters, let us again ask the Lord for his blessing as we seek to hear from him in his word. Oh, Father, as we enter into this time of your word being proclaimed, may you illumine our minds through your spirit. Father, speak to us through your Holy Spirit as your word is preached. May we be those who not only recognize why we gather together as a church for worship, but who then rejoice in the great blessing that you give as we gather together in worship. And Lord, we pray then that you will help us through our time together today to then see the beauty and wonder of Jesus Christ and the worship we can freely offer you in him. So we pray that you will be with us, Lord, and that you will help me to be the one who is able in my very weakness to bring your words to your people for your glory and for the salvation of all who have gathered together here this morning. 
So, Father, we ask for all these things in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ Himself. And in His name we ask these things. Amen. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, why do we gather together as a church in worship? It's because Christ opens the entrance into God's very presence for us to worship Him. Think about that. Christ opens the entrance into the very presence of God Himself when we gather together in worship. And we see this through this passage in three let us statements, right? There's three times in these verses where we read, let us, let us, let us. So we see this first in verse 22, let us draw near. Then in verse 23, let us hold fast the confession. And then third in verse 24, and let us consider one another. So that's how I've chosen to organize the sermon this morning with three let us statements. Let us draw near, let us hold fast the confession, and let us consider one another. So let's begin then with the first let us statement. Let us draw near, which is expressed in verses 19 to 22. Of course, the book of Hebrews itself has been written to a Jewish church, of a church that is has Jews, Jewish converts and yet is being tempted to forsake their faith in Christ and return to Judaism because of the hardships that they are facing and the suffering that they are enduring. That's why the author then responds by writing this powerful message that upholds the supremacy of Christ over all things. Because if they lose Christ, they lose everything. You see, the book of Hebrews, in this book of Hebrews, they are reminded that the church, this church of Christ, and what they have in Christ, they're reminded it's, it's better than even the Old Testament sacrificial system and the worship of the Jewish people, which could never take away their sins. See, it's the priest's ongoing daily offerings that continually reminded the worshipers of Israel, of their sins, but had no way to provide for forgiveness and cleansing of their sins, which then is why God became man in the person of Jesus Christ to make a better covenant with us and a once-for-all sacrifice as He offers Himself on the cross for our sins so that we are forgiven of our sins that we are cleansed of our unrighteousness. Again, the supremacy of Christ as He pays for our sins and the very punishment of God we deserve for our sins. And God promises to remember our sins no more. Oh, what a promise we have through Christ. And because of this word of promise, it's what we read earlier in Hebrews chapter 10, where God says, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. How then should we respond to this glorious truth? We respond by drawing near to God in worship. But before we come to this first let us statement in verse 22, we first read of how the gates of heaven have been opened for us to enter into God's presence. And so verse 19 begins, Therefore, brethren, see, because of Christ's completed offering for sin, we are brethren, brothers and sisters in Christ, in God's family of faith. God has adopted us as his children and he is our father, no longer a judge who rightly condemns us for our sins. 
but a father who has adopted us as his children and loves us as his own. And because we are then God's children, what can we do? But we go on to see in verse 19, we now have boldness to enter the holiest. Now this is drawing from the Old Testament in the Old Testament tabernacle and temple, which was the specific place that God gave his people Israel to meet with him in worship. So let, let's turn together. We can go back. Let's turn to Exodus chapter 25, where we read of God's instruction for the tabernacle. He gave to Moses. Again, God has freed his people from slavery in Egypt. And they are now in the wilderness waiting to enter the land that God promised them, the promised land. And so he, we read then of this tabernacle where God promises to be with them. And let's us then see in Exodus chapter 25, let's read together in verse 8 what God says to Moses. He says, and let them make me a sanctuary. Why? That I may dwell among them. God promises to dwell among his people. And in this tabernacle, in the very center of this tabernacle, was the holy place. The holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was. And it was this Ark of the Covenant that symbolized God's very throne. So we read more about this ark later in the chapter. So let's look together further down in verses 17 and 22, where God continues to speak to Moses. And he says to him, You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, and two and a half cubits shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its width. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Now these cherubim would be angels, right? But you shall make these two cherubim of gold of hammered work. You shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end and the other cherub at the other end. You shall make the cherubim at the two ends of it one piece with the mercy seat. And the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and they shall face one another. The faces of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you. Verse 22. And there what? And there I will meet with you. And I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are on the ark of the testimony, about everything which I will give you in the commandment to the children of Israel. Do you see then how God promises to meet with his people from the mercy seat? Yet, the people could not freely enter into the Holy of Holies but it was surrounded by a veil or a curtain all around this holy place to show the division between God's holiness and humanity's sinfulness. So they both dwell with God and yet cannot enter into the very place where he is present among them. And this continues up until Israel does enter the promised land, where then they have a new house of God, when the temple is built under the kingship of Solomon. So let's turn together then to Second Chronicles chapter 7, verses 1 to 3, where we see of this what happens as God meets with his people in the temple. You see... Solomon here has finished building the temple. They have been worshiping God through sacrifices. And we come to the dedication that Solomon makes as the temple 
opens for the people of God. And so we read in 2 Chronicles 7, verses 1 to 3, When Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. When all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Do you see then how the tabernacle and the temple are where, is where God's presence would be found among his people? And it was here where they would meet with God in worship. But we also see that they were too sinful to ever enter into the holy place. Which is why they had a high priest who would represent them and once a year would go into the holy place and sprinkle the blood of a, sacri of a sacrificial animal on the mercy seat of the ark so that God's people would receive mercy. Well, brothers and sisters, turning back then to Hebrews chapter 10, what do we see? But that Christ is our high priest who has entered into the holy place of heaven itself where God is present and offers His sacrificial blood so that we will receive mercy. This is why Matthew then records in his gospel that once Jesus died on the cross, then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. See, since the veil that had blocked entrance into the holy place was torn by Christ's death, we can now enter into God's presence ourselves. And do you see how we enter into the holiest? Verse 19. Boldly. Confidently. Freely. Because we can enter boldly into God's presence, as verse 19 ends, by the blood of Jesus. By the blood of Jesus. See, nothing we have done, nothing we have achieved, nothing we have earned, nothing we have accomplished gives us this entrance. But it is sheerly and completely and only through the blood of Jesus, which he offered for us through his death on the cross, and it's by the blood of Jesus alone that God welcomes us now into his presence to worship. And we go on then to see in verse 20 that our entrance into God's presence is a new and a living way. Right? By a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. We are then given access to God's presence that his old covenant people never had outside of Christ. And this access continues to us or for us because of the life of Christ and his resurrection glory that we now share when we receive Christ and the eternal life that we receive. You see, this entrance, as we see, as we read here, has been consecrated for us by Christ. So we can enter this new and living way because Christ went before us and opened this veil which separated us from God. And he has done this through his flesh in death. And since Christ has gone before us as our high priest into this heavenly holy place, we see that his church now has the right to enter in through 
the veil of his flesh and come into the very presence of God himself. So I ask you this morning, is this true of you? Is this true of you? Are you coming into the presence of God by the blood of Jesus Christ? Are you entering into the presence of God through the veil of Christ's flesh? Because if not, listen, it doesn't matter how many worship services you attend. You are still living outside of Christ under the judgment of God you deserve for your sin. So come to Christ by looking to Him with eyes of faith, turning away from your sins and repentance, turning to Christ, trusting in Him and His sacrifice of blood, which reconciles you with God and opens the gates of heaven so that you can enter into His presence. Well, come to Christ and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ because it's in Him alone that we enter into the presence of God. You see, and you see, it's because this is true of us as believers in Christ. That we then have the call of verse 22. Right? But do you see the glory of having Christ as our high priest? That's actually what is first said in verse 21. Not only have we the boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, but then second, we have a high priest over the house of God. Again, Christ is our high priest. He is the one who's opened the gates of heaven for us to enter into God's presence, which is here described as the house of God. Again, throughout the Old Testament, what were the tabernacle and temple called? But the house of God. Why? Because a house is where someone dwells. If I invite you over to the DeVito house, I am inviting you into where my family lives. I'm saying, come over to where I live and spend time with my family. Well, listen, through Christ, God welcomes us into his house. And we can enter into the very house of God in heaven, spend time with him in worship. So it's because we have this boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus and because we have a high priest over the house of God. We come to this call, the let us statement that's here in verse 22. Let us draw near. Now, of course, in one sense, we already live in the presence of God, right? God is omnipresent. He is present everywhere. There is nowhere in all the universe where God is not present. And no one and nothing exists outside of God's presence. But we have to distinguish between the ways in which God is present. There is a way that he is present generally in the world as our creator then there's another sense in which he's not present until we're believers in God through the Lord Jesus Christ. See, it's only as Christians that we have the promise that God is present with us since God the Holy Spirit dwells in us. And so he is present with his people in a way that he is not present in the rest of his creation. And his presence begins when the Holy Spirit regenerates our souls and we believe in Christ, which continues then through our lives in this world. So there's a general presence 
of all creation by God. And then there's a specific presence in God's people through the Holy Spirit when we come to Christ in faith. Yet still, in another sense, we are not in the presence of God as Christians. Because what do we see here? The Christians are called to draw near to God's presence. That we still need to draw near to God. See, we are still waiting to enter into the fullness of God's presence. When Christ returns and the dawning of our eternal future begins. Listen to how the Apostle John portrays this coming of a new heavens and a new earth in Revelation 21, verse 3. Or John writes, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. Do you see then how this eternal dwelling in God's presence is still in our future? So what do we then see in Hebrews 10, verse 22? That as Christians we can taste this future glory in God's presence now as we draw near to him in worship. So we are to draw near to God's presence in this special sense as we worship God as his people. And how are we to draw near? Well, Four things are mentioned which should be true of us as we draw near. As we continue to see in verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart. See, Christ gives us new hearts to believe and trust in him. And so this is a sincere heart of love and devotion to God, which we receive through the Holy Spirit. So we must draw near with a true heart and... We go on to read, in full assurance of faith, which is a certainty of Christ's saving work for us, which we gain through believing in him. We are assured of our salvation in Christ because of what he has done for us and because we are believing in what he has done for us, which is why we are then able to draw near in worship. But this true heart and full assurance of faith come through the next two truths. Let's go on to read in verse 22. First, because we have had our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. See, this is what Christ's death for us has accomplished. That our sinful hearts are cleansed through the cross, which is then applied to our conscience when we believe in Christ. And then we go on to read at the end of verse 22, we have our bodies washed with pure water. Now, many Christians believe this is a reference to baptism. And this is certainly possible. But I think its Old Testament roots actually point us in a different direction. You see, with Christ as our great high priest, we ourselves become priests so that we enter into God's heavenly presence in worship. And again, we look back to the Old Testament where the priests were prepared to enter into God's presence in the Old Testament. Listen to Exodus chapter 29, verse 4. What God says to Moses of Aaron and his sons as priests. We read, And Aaron and his sons, you shall bring to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and you shall wash them with water. Or later in the chapter, Exodus 29, verse 21, we read, And you shall take some of the blood that is on the altar and some of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and on his garments and on his sons and on the garments of his sons with him. And he and his garments shall be hallowed and his sons and his sons' garments with him. And this very anointing of priesthood is then carried out by Moses, as we later read in Leviticus chapter 8, verses 6 to 30. What am I then saying? 
well, Christ is our high priest, read here, sprinkles our hearts from an evil conscience and washes our bodies with pure water. You see, with the coming of Christ, we are all priests who have had our hearts sprinkled by Christ's blood and our bodies washed with his pure water. Which is why the Protestant Reformation recovered this wonderful doctrinal truth of the priesthood of all believers. All believers are priests who enter into the very presence of Christ himself. But brothers and sisters, here's how we can misunderstand these verses. Hear me. You know how we can misunderstand? By individualizing this passage. In other words, when we read this call, let us draw near, we hear the saying to us, let us draw near as individuals. So this drawing near is my privately drawing close to Christ by myself as a believer. But this call, let us draw near, is in a letter written to a church. So we should primarily read this call as let us draw near as a church. The context of these verses is the worship of God by his people in the house of God using the Old Testament types of Israel's earthly worship of the tabernacle and temple. So we draw near to God together as his church. And when our church gathers together in worship, we enter into God's heavenly presence as a preview of our eternal future in Christ. In other words, when our church gathers together in worship, listen, our church is spiritually lifted up to heaven where we meet with God together. Isn't that amazing? Right now, our church is in the presence of God in heaven. That is what it means for us to worship God as his people together. We are in the heavens, in God's home, to draw near to him in worship. What a privilege then. Christ is open to us as his church. That we meet with God together when we gather and draw near to him. And so you have this first call, let us draw near. But this brings us to the second let us statement in verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. So what else are we to do as Christ's church? But to hold fast, to grip and not let go because of how precious God's word is to us. The scripture has been given to us so that we hear and know and experience the very love of God. So we confess Christ as Savior by believing in his gospel and committing then to keep all of his words as they are revealed to us. Which is summarized here as the confession of our hope. Again, I hope I never become a broken record, but listen, Christianity is a future-focused faith. Our hope is not in this world, but in the world to come, and we live as Christians waiting for our future eternity with Him. So we have a confession, this confession of our hope. But what do we see here in verse 23? That our confession of hope is one that can waver, right? We're to hold fast this confession of our hope without wavering. See, we can start to wonder if the gospel is really 
true? Or if the gospel blessings of Christ will really come? So as Christians, we can doubt God in His goodness and His grace. But there's no need for our faith in Christ to waver. There is no need for the confession of our hope to waver because God is faithful to His promise. That's what we go on to receive in verse 23 as an encouragement, for He who promised is faithful. You see, some of our promises may be unfulfilled, but God's promises are completely reliable and will be kept. Now, Hebrews has already spoken of this. If you go back to Hebrews chapter 6, here we read of God and His promise made to Abraham. We go on to read in Hebrews 6, verses 17 to 18. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability or the unchangeableness of His counsel, confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable or unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of what? The hope set before us. You see then how God has kept his promises and he will keep. His promises. So as we wait for His promises to come, we should remember Christ, that He is on His throne in heaven, sovereignly reigning over this world until He returns, and we will finally receive His promises to us. Which is why when we gather in worship, we hold fast to the confession of our hope through a steadfast commitment to the Word of God where these promises are revealed. And why the Word of God then fills every element of our worship together. So we will hold fast to the confession of our hope. And I'm also thankful that our church then is a confessional church that we have a confession of faith that we hold together as a system of doctrine that summarizes this biblical teaching. Why do we have a confession of faith? It's not to be weird. It's not to be narrow-minded, but it's to summarize the confession of our hope. And you know, this even holds me accountable in my ministry. That I must hold fast the confession of our hope. And if I do not teach in accordance with the confession of our hope, I am held under the authority of the Scriptures and the confession which has been summarized for us that we agree upon to live in light of together. So, brothers and sisters, may we all live by our hope in Christ and our commitment to His truth. And frankly, we need as a church to renew our dedication to our confession of faith because this is how we hold fast to this confession of our hope without wavering as we worship God with this confession of our hope and because of our doctrinal convictions of this biblical truth this is what I want us to recognize that we are not reformed Baptists because we are convinced that our confessional doctrine is true but we are reformed Baptists because God is worthy of our worship and our theological commitments lead us to rightly worship God and to be blessed by God in our worship. See, our confession is a means to worship God. 
and we worship God as we hold fast the confession. But this brings us to the third and final let us statement in verses 24 to 25. And let us consider one another. See, we are to live out the Christian life together, loving one another in local churches. You know what's incredible? That the three let us statements in these verses correspond to the three great graces of the Christian life, faith, hope, and love. Did you hear it already? The first let us statement, verse 22, let us draw near with what? Faith. Second let us statement, verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. And now let us consider one another in order to stir up love, faith, hope, and love coming together as we worship God, as his people. Now here's a controversial statement. But hear me. Christianity is not primarily about my personal relationship with Jesus Christ. But Christianity is about a community of faith that Christ has brought together and unified by his death so that we will grow in grace together. You see how we are a body of Christ. He is the head. We are the body. And we need one another as members of his body to live as Christ's body. It's the local church. And so we are the body of Christ who we see here consider one another. You know, we have all these one another statements through the New Testament. Here's a one another. Consider one another by focusing on each other's spiritual needs. So I read in Philippians 2, verses 3 to 4, the Apostle Paul expanding on this truth when he writes, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. And why are we to consider and care for one another in the church? Well, we go on to read in verse 24, so that, or in order to, stir up love and good works. So Christians encourage and motivate love in the body of Christ. See, since Christ loved us, we are joined together to become a people of love. And we have a responsibility to then strengthen and deepen our love towards God and one another. We want to stir up this love among us. And as we stir up love, what will happen? But good works will result. Because our love will be expressed in our good works, which then will help support our church family as we struggle and suffer in this world. So do you see how this works? How then will we consider one another? Verse 25, by assembling together in worship in God's presence. Because it's as we worship together that the church stirs up love and good works. Which is why we read in verse 25, not forsaking. This warning of not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. Yeah. Because our worship, listen, it's not only vertical. Where we draw near to God. But our worship is also horizontal where we help each other draw near to God. And this is why, then, we need to assemble together for worship as a church. Because we are called to live this Christian life together. And we are called to worship together, which is why it is dangerous for us to forsake the assembling of ourselves 
together. See, forsaking the assembling of Christ's church here is not merely a hypothetical problem, is it? But we read here, it is a real problem because it is the manner of some. There are some who do forsake the assembling of ourselves together in Christ. See, our sinful flesh may lead us to neglect assembling together with the church for worship. After all, you may think, I have the Bible. I can read and pray and sing on my own. Or I can worship God together with my family and my friends. But without the assembled worship of God's people, I am much more likely to abandon my faith through the temptations and trials of life. Because when we assemble together, we go on to see in verse 25, we exhort one another or encourage one another to faithfulness in the midst of our sinful struggles and our challenging circumstances and our tough temptations. You know, the truth is, I have never seen a mature and thriving Christian or a spiritually healthy Christian filled with joy who is not a, an involved member of a local church who is not committed to gathering together with their church in worship. Why? Because it is through our gathering in worship that God is at work among us to grow us in grace and godliness. See, we need the support of one another in the church. And we need the support more and more as we engage in spiritual battle, waiting for the return of Christ in His coming day of judgment, which is what verse 25 goes on to say. We're exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So we see this day approaching by faith. But waiting, let's be honest, it's not easy. And so we need one another to not fail or to fall away from our faith in Christ. Do you see then how the forsaking of the assembling of ourselves together actually endangers our souls? And we can repeat the very sin of Israel as they abandon the Lord in their sin. We see then as when Christ returns, it will be a joyous time of celebration for those who are saved. And those who are saved together as God's people in Christ's church. But the day that comes will be a sobering time of judgment. For those who remain in their sin. Do you see then that when we gather for worship, when our church gathers for worship, praise God that Christ opens the entrance into God's presence for us to worship Him. That Christ has opened the very entrance of heaven for us to worship God in His presence as His people. That's why Christ then gives us a weekly invitation to enter into God's presence when the church gathers to worship. And brothers and sisters, this is a unique opportunity we are given to meet with God Himself. And this doesn't happen anywhere else in our lives. So when we neglect or forsake this assembling of ourselves together, it is to our own danger and peril. But how opposite this is, and this understanding of the Christian life is for most Christians today, and for how most Christians think today. After all, I can draw near to Christ on my own. I don't need the church to worship God. 
But what God tells us through his word is that we must meet with him as his people. And it's as we assemble together that we are promised to enter into God's heavenly presence through gathering together as Christ's church. This is then why the, one of the Puritans, the Puritan pastor David Clarkson, once preached a sermon. You know what the title was? Public worship is to be preferred before private. Now that'll get you in trouble today. You mean public worship is preferred over my private Bible study? Yes. You mean public worship is to be preferred over my family worship? Yes. You mean public worship is to be preferred over the other times that I'm gathered together with Christians? Yes. You know, Clarkson's sermon was drawn from Psalm 87, verse 2. In that psalm, we read, The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. And Clarkson shows from this verse that the Lord loves the public worship of his gathered people in Jerusalem more than their private worship as individuals or families in the homes of Jacob. And since the coming of Christ, we enter into the heavenly gates of Zion whenever a church gathers to worship him. Which means we do not enter into this presence of God through our personal devotionals. We do not enter into the, this presence of God through our small group Bible studies. And we don't enter into this presence of God through online worship services. But we enter into the worship and the very presence of God as we worship by assembling together where we are then lifted up into the very heavens to dwell with God in His presence. We enter into God's presence when we gather together in Christ's name to worship Him. And that's why this morning I'll give you three pastoral recommendations. Three pastoral recommendations because of this invitation Christ gives us to worship in his presence as his people. First, prioritize the church's worship gatherings in your schedule. Prioritize the church's worship gatherings in your schedule. Look, I know there are times when we're not able to gather for worship. There was a time last Sunday when we weren't able to gather together for worship, right? because of the weather. There are providential hindrances. There may be times where we are away from home visiting others. But here's the question I think we all need to ask ourselves. What else in life is worth missing God's invitation to enter his presence and meet with him in worship? What else could possibly compete with this divine opportunity to meet with God in worship. May we then prioritize our church's worship gatherings in our schedule. But not only shall we prioritize, second, prepare. Prepare to worship. Prepare the night before. Try as much as possible to have your work done through the week. So you're free to worship. Try to have your studies done through school for worship. And listen, Saturday night is not the time to stay out late with others. Saturday night is not the time to binge watch the latest TV show or movie. Saturday night is the time to go to bed. So that you'll wake up ready and refreshed to meet with God in his presence and worship. So we prioritize, we prepare, and finally, 
we pray. Pray for God's blessings upon our time together. We've been studying Revelation, the seven chapters, the, the danger of the church of falling into sin, where God warns of no longer being present. We can assemble and God not be present. May we then pray for God's blessings upon us as we follow these three let us statements. To let us draw near. To let us hold fast our confession of hope. And to let us consider one another in order to stir up one another, or stir up love and good works together. Brothers and sisters, Christ opens the entrance into God's presence for us to worship Him. May we cherish this time together. Now, I mentioned before this book from Jonathan Cruz, and again, I encourage you to pick it up, but uh, one of the things Cruz says here early in his book that I think is helpful for us to reflect upon as we worship is this. Cruz writes, Worship is never dull, but we are sometimes. Church going is monotonous and mundane only because our eyes are blinded to the supernatural wonder that is taking place all around us. The reality is that worship is an exhilarating experience. So we don't need to we don't need smoke machines, more lights, dramatic presentations, louder music, mystical theology or entertaining speakers to make worship exciting. But we simply need to understand what's going on in the first place. Brothers and sisters, that's my hope for us through this series of sermons that we will understand what's going on in worship in the first place. we have the blessing as God's people of entering into his presence in the heavens for us to worship him. May we then do so every week as God calls us together to meet with him in worship. Let's pray. Father, Father, we stand amazed in the presence of Jesus of Galilee. That we have this wonderful blessing of meeting with you in worship. Father, may we truly enjoy dwelling in your presence through Christ and his offering of blood in the heavens as he intercedes for us before your throne. And may we then seek weekly to draw near to you as your people, who are, holding face to our, faith, who are holding fast to our confession of hope and who are considering one another in order to stir up love and good works. May this be how we live the Christian life, Lord. As one of worshiping you in your presence. May we prioritize this time May we prepare for this time. May we pray for your blessings of this time. That our worship together will be a time where we will truly be encouraged by the grace of Christ, by the goodness of His gospel, and by the glories to come in Him. Father, give us a taste when we gather together in worship. Oh, we ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.